Welcome, old listener, to another episode of Spam, Spam, Spam Humbug. This is episode 119 of the podcast, and we have another great discussion lined up for you. This week, the discussion was mainly carried by Harmony Dragon, Dark Wraith Dragon, and Draxneth. Once again, I came in kind of in the middle, and I'm not even going to attempt to <laughs> enumerate some of the different topics that we covered in this segment, because we talked about everything from... The Verge engine, it's an ancient game engine from, oh gosh, probably about 20 years ago. We talked about Secret of Mana. We talked about Vampire Talisman of Invocation. We talked about Shards of Immortality. We talked about just all kinds of crazy stuff. Some of which you've heard of, some of which you might not have heard of. And you just, you're really going to have to just check out the episode to, to see all, to hear rather all of what we talked about. Um, but another great discussion. Oh my goodness. I think Draxneth went on for a bit too about like D and D systems and character creation and record of the dragon goddess, which she's working on. It's just, it's, it's a wide ranging discussion. Also, of course, we are now hosted on Anchor.fm, Spam 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 Humbug is. That's a new and much more social podcast hosting platform. You can find us at Anchor.fm slash podcast if you don't want to visit our website at Spam 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 Humbug.com. And if you are on Anchor, you can take advantage of some of the community features there. You can leave us voice messages up to a minute in duration. We will find a way to work those into the podcast. And you can give our episodes applause. If you're listening in the Anchor app on our iOS or Android, you can even favorite our episodes and the podcast itself. For those of you who do the smart home thing, you can find us live on both the Apple HomePod and on Google Home. So try saying, hey Siri, or hey Google, play the podcast Spam, Spam, Spam Humbug and see what happens. I haven't added Alexa support yet, but I'm thinking about it. Maybe one day. And of course, as always, this episode of Spam, Spam, Spam Humbug is brought to you by our Patreon backers. Thank you to everyone who supports the podcast and the Codex by that means. And as always, a hearty thank you to our co-producers. Seth, Golden Flame, Chris, Brickbat, Dominic, Violation, Cranberry, Christopher, Bruce, Dark Wraith, Dragon, Helgriff, Gronk, Pascal, and Thorwan. And now, on with the show. but I'm going to be doing something tomorrow I don't normally do, and I'm going to be having a lot of fun doing it. What is it? One of my friends is a huge wrestling fan. Oh. And tomorrow is WrestleMania. Mm-hmm. Oh, pay-per-view? That's the biggest one of the year, at least if you're into that particular wrestling federation. Hmm. I am writing, still writing, or typing, rather. <laughs> writing what? Part of fiction, a little of world building, and a fictional interview. Something original, or? Yes. Uh, an interview with the dragon goddess. Oh, that's you that writes that. Yeah. Nice. Uh, a part of the interview, well, it turned around and she's asking the interviewer questions about the current status quo of the world. I'm writing about one of the biggest settlements. And it's one of the... Uh, I'm still sorting it out. 
because it's going to be very this one is going to be especially long there are legions this is this is not exactly one settlement but eight cities which is which are say belong to a single kingdom they are collectively called the quarreling cities the population of each individual city is quite uniform in racial distribution there is a city mostly inhabited by humans, another by giants, another by minotaurs and fawns, there's another by werecats, one more for werewolves, another by insect men, and another for centaurs and satyrs, another by lizard men and avians. They're not very far from one another, and roughly in the center of that territory is a ruined castle, where it is said a king ruled them all. And then there's there's part that still needs filling needs to be filled, where there's going to be descriptions of everything. Then jumps to another part that says that for the this ancient king, the lore and legions are different in each city. In each city, in fact, those differing legions are what have kept them from reunifying and have contributed to the ongoing quarrels. The legions of King Centurion. The humans claim he was human. The avians claim he was avian. The giants claim he was a giant. The werewolves claim he was a werewolf, and so on. Each legion tells of how King Centurion liberated the people from human oppression. As for the human's version, it tells of how he united them all under the same banner. By then, I noticed the goddess's wrinkled brow. You know the real story, don't you? My understanding is it happened over a thousand years ago. Would you mind sharing what you know? She looked very tired, as if her depression had returned, heavier than ever. King Centurion, that is a made-up character. They are ashamed of the truth. There was a warrior they loved, one who gave everything for them. And when he decided to pursue a little of personal happiness, the selfish interest of others led to the kingdom's downfall. Now they go on denying what really happened, attributing this warrior's deeds to a fictitious king who died of a broken heart. And there's a lot of things that I'm going to feel in between. No, I like where you're going with that. I really do. Mm. It's going to be very long since I'm going to explain uh, to describe a little of how of the uh, of each of the eight cities. What what are their main activities and how they interact with each other? They, there's commerce between the cities since they produce different things and have different customs. And then I will I will tell the legions as they are as they are told on each of the cities. I will speak of a hermit who who sings a song which tells the all of the legions as as a unified song as if uh, telling that all of them are actually group. And 
adds well it adds a lot of other details this that's one of the uh, that's going to be some there's going to be events on the story very very later many years later in that region and the truth will be revealed about that warrior and everything it's going to it's a legend very similar to that of king arthur what type of city do the insects build well that's that one's quite complicated because it's a sort of uh hive so they have wings they can fly yes well the some of them since they are varied in their physical attributes much the same as for example there's a, there's a city inhabited by lizard men and avians the avians are birdmen and even there are several strains of avians do the avians have hands for gripping on their wings yeah they have a, their their wings they have fingers on their wings and um, I am. Um, well, my idea is they have hands sort of uh, similar like the pterodactyl. Oh, what dinosaur was it? It was a dinosaur which had like small hands on the wings. Um, that's the idea. And, and they will have weaponry designed for while they're flying, weaponry like a sort of a. Uh, sort of a crossbow which is attached uh, it's a strap on the leg loaded with one leg and it's strapped on the other and they will also have talons and other exotic weaponry designed mostly for their for their body and they will have uh, besides the razors they will also have sharp claws on their fingers, the ones from their wings. Sort of like a sort of uh uh like a fan of knives it would look something like that. Mm. And designing lots of exotic weapons for each of the different races. And I'm still deciding on uh on the appearance of each of the of the races um, that I'm creating, the avians, well, well uh, the lizard men, there will be the uh, some draconic races as well. Now, the original concept of the avians was they would have separate arms and then all the wings from coming. Coming out of, from their backs, but then I decided to to give that body shape to the draconic races to have arms separate from the wings, and then the avians to have the arms be part of the wings, just for variety. Make sure they don't look all the same. <laughs> right. I'm trying to come up with a general appearance that doesn't look so much like the like the Rido tribe from Legend of Zelda. I want it. I want them to 
to look different. Don't want to copy something else. Don't want to copy from some other game. How in depth do you plan on going? Like, are you going to do slice of life type stories of NPCs or characters of, from each race? Because I can't help but wonder how does an avian species actually build anything? How do insects, how does a hive organize itself? Have you ever seen a beehive or an anthill? Pretty darn well in, in, in the real world. Right, but they can't. They have no intelligence. It's all programmed. Take something like that, add, because I'm assuming this is a magical world, so if a magical world with insects, Mm -hmm. you're probably going to have some sort of hive mind and maybe some sort of central intelligence. (laughs) Is that the case? Jackson S? Well, it's one of the things I I had been thinking that there's a sort of a... What I was thinking is there's a sort of a a king or queen, most likely queen, and that the the descendants from that one have the collective mind. They are bound to their parent. And except for when another, uh, another queen is born, that one is independent and at some point uh, leaves the hive or maybe there's a sort of hierarchy inside the hive and and each of them has uh, each queen has its des- has its descendants who are in some way bound to her I'm still working on that part but in the case since they are going to be about human size they will they will be smaller than 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 what it is on for example it would not be the same as a normal beehive or a normal anthill where there are thousands of where there's one queen and thousands of drones and and others would be different it would be smaller in scale since they are bigger I'm still uh, defining how many. Is there a glo- is there an economy, a global economy that all the races participate in? Do they trade with each other? Uh, the thing is this: there's uh, there were gods from there are gods from all races, uh, but there was a conflict. And the human god uh, defeated the, and, and imprisoned most of them. The only one he could not defeat was the dragon goddess. And the dragon goddess, uh, seeing that the other races were helpless and had no gods, he decided to embrace them all and and protect them from the human oppressors. Who were enslaving them, and uh, eventually she is betrayed and decides to exile herself and abandon them. So the humans established their beliefs, their religion, their economy. They label all other gods as demons and enforce their beliefs, their government, and everything, even their economy. And there are a very 
few regions where the humans do not rule. And this one of the eight cities is one of those regions where there's no, there's no absolute control from humans. They are sort of free. And there's also another, another city, which is uh, multiracial, multicultural, and is not, uh, is not ruled under a human regime. I've been working on this and for quite some time. It might, uh, well, the tone and the way some, some subjects are handled, like the capitalism, uh, socialism, the, the concept of veganism, uh, animal slavery, and all of that are touched to some extent. And, and the dragon goddess's personal opinion, neither capitalism nor socialism work at all. And she believes in a sort of a, Anarchy in uh, in which the there's anarchy and uh, I don't know how it's called self uh, self regulation or some kind of government which springs from when which springs when when the citizens have a very high level of consciousness and something very utopic that which is. Uh, it's really impossible to reach that, but lots of people dream of that kind of thing, that kind of government and or and organization. Since she's a dragon, she she has a lot of power. She has wings, and is uh, and she believes strongly in freedom. And she suffered. Uh, she suffered being oppressed for some time and, and doesn't want uh, people to be oppressed or to be forced to do something they don't want. So she has a sort of radical way to see some things. I don't know if you have read the, the interview as I have been publishing it. No, I haven't, but I'm at your web page now. On the bookmark yeah, for later. I've tried, yeah, I've tried to. I've tried to touch the subjects very superficially to give a hint about what she thinks or what she believes, but have tried not to get too deep into it because uh, I know they are touchy subject. You know, some people. <laughs> Some people just cannot read and, and accept that there are different point of views. <laughs> so it's better not to dig too, to delve too deep into them. It always amuses me, you know, intrigues me to listen to an author talking about their work. Now, now I'm in no way a professional writer myself. I do a lot of fan fiction writing. So hearing somebody talking about a world they've come up with on their own rather than working in working in some but in some pre-created uh, setting is always intriguing to me. Especially with the well, ways that go ahead, I'm sorry. No, I'm going to read the about webpage the what I wrote on the blog as a sort of a 
presentation. I had played the Ultima series since childhood. What made Ultima great was not its virtue system or its story by itself, but the fact that every NPC felt alive. Every item had a use and or meaning and a reason to exist. All of them were connected, and your actions had an impact on them and made the game feel like a real living world. It could be summarized with the origin slogan, We Create Worlds. In, th in 2006, I started a homebrew Dungeons & Dragons campaign inspired by the Ultima video game series. I, I have kept the origin slogan and the Ultima Essence always in my mind as I worked. As the revisions of my campaign setting progressed, it slowly took a path of its own, with a completely new pantheon, creatures, and its own history. It currently keeps very little from its Dungeons and & Dragons and Ultima roots, but even if there are no longer gargoyles, Black Rock, a Lord British, or anything imported directly from the Ultima universe, the essence of the saga is there. So it really started as a derivative from Ultima and then evolved. And, uh, it took its own path. It started deviating from it and then started taking things out and putting my own, replacing one thing with another. Started removing things from Ultima and putting my own, then removing things from Dungeons and Dragons and putting my own. Been working like that and giving it uh, its own feeling. There used to be elves and drow, and I replaced them by aliens and lizard men. And uh, there were half giants. I decided to make them into full giants. <laughs> Many other races like dwarves and others. I orcs, I ended up replacing them all. And I redesigned the concept of undead, concept of vampires. Well, Ultima evolved similarly over time, as I remember. I mean, the first games yeah. you had hobbits and elves and dwarves, but over time they shoot off the hobbits and the elves and the dwarves and the closest we had were the Emps and U7, and that was really only something people suggested as a theory that Garriott, or Richard Garriott ran, uh, went and ran with. Mm -hmm. I still remember playing Ultima 1 and flying through space and shooting down TIE Fighters. <laughs> Ultima 1 and its timeline, its place in the timeline is always complicated. <laughs> oh, because uh, if you remember on Ultima One, uh, Mundane is already immortal, and you go back in time to uh, prevent him from becoming immortal and kill him. Oh, that right there is a grandfather oh. paradox. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and if you see it, that part uh, after after that. Uh, comes Minax, and then comes Exodus, and then we have the other Ultima 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. 
And then it comes Shroud of the Avatar, where we are back in uh. in the same land where the where where it was Ultima Three, and there are elves. So so it it, it begs for the question of where where in the timeline is it, and how far is it from? From mundane Minax and Exodus, they are even mentioned in the game. Well, my theory, at least as far as all of that goes, is if I remember right, they didn't ever explicitly say in Ultima's four, five, and six that the Avatar was the same stranger who came back or who came in Ultima one, two, and three. Or even that the stranger that came in Ultima Two and the stranger that came in Ultima Three were the same person as the one from Ultima One. Mm-hmm. I think that they didn't really have that set in stone until they started writing the manual for Seven, and they're like, "Oh crap, mm-hmm. we've got a saga here. We've actually got to try to put some continuity to all the stories that we've written so far." You know, s- similarly compare the Legend of Zelda timeline. Yeah. <laughs> And how many one has lots of branchings. Right. What I'm wondering is whether or not Mondane was a native Sosarian. Uh says that he is a son of King Wolfgang, I think. King Wolfgang the second, was it? Yeah, I remember reading somewhere in something that the gem that became the gem of immortality was something he stole from his father. Yes, the gem which took power from the sun. They also never explained why it was that uh, Earth, you know, humans from Earth aged so slowly once they got to uh, Britannia, Caesarea. Because it was heavily implied that between between 4 and 7, there were hundreds of years that passed. Well, if you accept what is written for Shroud of the Avatar. Humans aren't the only ones who age so slowly. The Titans in Shroud also age slowly. And they came from worlds other than Earth. Hmm. I didn't look into the actual lore of Shroud that deeply other than what's shown in-game. You know, I, I didn't read the novels. I didn't read the... You know, I just played through most of the love story but as it existed back in like release 33. Or 35, I think. I mean, I remember that they made a big plot point at the beginning of the game when you were on the Isle of Storms or whatever it was called, the Tutorial Island, that you were told, don't tell anybody you're from off-world. It will be bad for you if you do. Yet, magically, once I got into the world, everybody knew. Everybody was calling me Outlander, Outworlder. With disconnects like that, it made it hard for me to follow the story too deeply. I, it's been a, over a year since I read the novel, but I think it goes into that in the novel. There, uh, the natives are pushing back against the Outlanders. They don't want any more outside interference. Yep, there are Outlanders that they explicitly all but worship, read Lord British and the Titans. I would love to see them explore the Serpent Isle. Ultima 7 Part 2 teased us with this ancient civilization. It just left us to dry, left us hanging. Oh, There's so I, much more they could explain. <laughs> absolutely. 
<laughs> Though, given things as they are right now, expecting we'll see anything, even development docs for episode two of Soda, I'm I'm not seeing it. No, I don't have high hopes for Soda anymore. I mean, I'm reminded of Operation Desert Storm and that one Iraqi military person on TV saying, oh, everything is fine. Everything is fine. The heathen, the infidel Americans are, you know, and this isn't me trying to be racist. Please understand. They're saying, oh, the Americans are, are committing suicide on our doorstep. Everything is fine. You are all safe. Meanwhile, in the background of his footage, you could see the American tank columns rolling in. Yeah, I agree. They're acting like everything is fine, but clearly they're at risk. I don't know how much longer that game is going to keep going. I mean, there was similar, again, going to real world history, is looking at World War II and all of the uh, state media reports in Japan about the great victory we won here or the great victory we won there. And if you plotted each great victory, it was slowly on a path towards mainland Japan. And that's how I feel when I look at the news coming from inside Portalarium. Mm-hmm. So what's preventing people from creating fan games? People have been making Ultima fan games for damn near as long as they've been making Ultima mainline games. Uh, maybe maybe what is required is a I don't know, maybe a toolkit or something like like open Arthurian be more widely known and available. More yeah, I kickstarted that, but I haven't tried to use it yet. What I'm not an artist by any means. I can program, but when it comes to the art, now nah, I'm a total loss. So I need that project to provide the tile sets. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There was tile sets available. Also, there's Aniko with the shards project. Have you checked on that? So uh, shards I, of immortality. I, shards of immortality. What is that? Um, putting it, uh, putting it on the linkage channel. Uh, you look at the list of online users. You will see someone called Eniko. He's the author. She's Bismuth Dragon. Oh, cool. I mean, in my pretty- free time, I've been dabbling with RPG Maker. Which one? There's been like several. No kidding. The, uh, the latest one. The one that lets huh. you do mobile and desktop. Uh, and I have all the tile sets. And I've just been experimenting with creating a JRPG version of Ultima 1. It's really fun to play with. It's nowhere near ready for public consumption. I wouldn't even share screenshots. But it's fun to play with. Now, speaking of Ultima at like games, there was one game I had a shareware disc of. I can't remember where I got it. It was called, uh, and I had to just come right now while we were talking and look up the name for it so I could remember what it was. It was Vampire Talisman of Invocation. I didn't know it at the time when I had it, but I was basically playing an Ultima clone. Hell. Now that I go back and look at the graphics, now having played U4 and U5, I think the graphics were damn near copies, as if they stole some of the the skeleton tiles and such. (laughs) 
That happens a lot. I'm, it still happens. Well, let me actually drop a link in chat, or a link really quick so you can see what I'm talking about. I mean, if you ever got into uh, emulation and playing like the Final Fantasy games and Chrono Trigger and whatnot, that's all they do is repurpose the sprites and the tiles. What, an RPG maker? Yeah. Yeah, I've seen quite a few different fan RPG games that, you know, look like they were somebody was just trying to make a freeware version of Final Fantasy 4 or 6. You know, in one of my experiments, I actually did use the Ultima 6 tiles in RPG Maker. They weren't the right dimensions, so I had to mess around, but it turned out okay. I did all of uh, the sewers under Britannia, all the maps. That's always one of the complicated things to get tiles for the scenarios. Then again, I had a friend who was har- wanted to get into game design, but when they were still in high school and in college, were very hardcore into making RPG Maker games. And they made some really fascinating, interesting stuff that I got to beta. Mm-hmm. Like, making their own real-time battle, you know, active-time battle system with, rather mm-hmm. than the usual turn base that, uh, that I'm used to seeing from RPG Maker-style mm-hmm. games. Yeah. Or from, go ahead. Yeah, I was remembering been more than 20 years, uh, 22 years ago was the when I participated actively in the indie game development community formed around a game engine called Verge and its derivative called Ica. And it was very powerful. Uh, it didn't have a built-in tile set or built-in sprites like uh, like RPG Maker did. So it was not so popular, but it was very flexible. Verge had its own scripting language, and later it was replaced by Lua. And Ica had Python, Python scripting. And they were very powerful. Even we were able to create our, our own special routines in C or, and load them from Python or Lua to do lots of stuff at much better much better speed, much lower processing load. It wasn't like special visual effects. I seem to remember Verge. Wasn't that made by Andrew Gestahl, something like that? Didn't he do the unofficial Squaresoft pages? No. Verge was made by Benjamin Eirich. And Ica was made by Andrew Friesen. When it comes to game design, I have to say plain, I've never really been a developer. I tried getting into C after writing some basic text adventure stuff in basic. So I'm coming at this from the consumer rather than the developer angle. So, for me, one of the best things of Ultima Games is the interactivity. I love the story, of course, but I like the fact that objects are usable. Have you ever played the Star Ocean games? Oh, yes. Okay, so they have one of the best crafting methods that I've ever seen on a console game. Oh. Like, I forget exactly which game it was, but you had to balance the heat while you're smithing weapons. 
I thought that was really fun. And if I was to go deeper into a JRPG version of an Ultima game, I would want to have some sort of crafting system like that. That's interactive and not passive. Now, if we're talking about Star Ocean, one of my favorite aspects of that series, and by extension, the Tales of series, were the private actions. Oh, yeah, that was great for the narrative. Well, I mean, for branching off from the narrative, I should say. You really got to know the characters on a deeper level. Absolutely. In fact, I've seen a lot of tabletop RPG groups use a similar system to allow players, especially online tabletop games, you know, or groups that meet online, rather, to allow players to, in their off time, in between sessions, to meet and interact in character and flesh out their characters together and their interplay between each other. You know, not for any type of material reward or anything, just for the ability to roleplay. Generally, this is more of a thing I see in groups that are about the social aspect rather than the going in and killing stuff. Right. In fact, back when I used to run Scion a lot, I used to actively encourage people to do so. Admittedly, I did sweeten the pot by offering bonus experience for people who did something truly interesting. This game was made with merge. The art, the ships are procedurally generated. The shape of the ship with the internal scripting language it had. Well, I'm seeing a lot of similar structure on each ship, so I can assume there's some base base forms it looks up rather than doing it pixel by pixel. Yeah, but I don't know the details since the author didn't share the source code, but the game is quite advanced. Verge is a RPG engine, but it was so powerful you could do just anything. Sorry, I stepped away for a minute. You were talking about Scion? Yes, I used to... I've ran several uh, Scion campaigns, yes. Uh, what is Scion? It's it's a tabletop... Playing. Exactly. It's, it uses... You're a sort of a god, god avatar or something like that? I can explain. It's a storyteller system like Vampire the Masquerade or Werewolf... Mm-hmm. Uh, the Apocalypse, or Mage or the, Mage Ascension. the Ascension. But instead of playing any of those things, what you are is the bastard offspring of a human and one of the gods of mythology. So you could, so think of it like Percy Jackson, the RPG. Mm. Okay. Though, rather than, well, though it's set in this, how to explain? Okay. Like any White Wolf game, it's not all sunshine and farts. It's dark, and yeah, the Ragnarok is coming, and you were basically trying to do what you can to be a good little soldier and try to stop you know, things from be- getting as bad as they could be. Well, inevitably, I found nobody ever plays a straight character. I mean, I'm not seeing... What, I didn't mean it that way. What I mean is, you very rarely see, oh, I'm... I'm a seafaring son, a uh, son of Poseidon, or oh, oh, I'm a badass child of 
what I what I always ended up seeing were people that created interesting living breathing characters like two twins who knew that they were god spawned from the beginning thinking that the bright happy son was going to end up being the child or being adopted by Apollo and the other by Artemis when it turned out the other way around so the chipper's son was adopted by Artemis and the gothy you know gothy dark uh, daughter was adopted by Apollo so lots of angst there or one or one character that I, I in particular that I remember from one of the groups that I ran was a son of Odin who happened to be very very gay now I nothing wrong with that except that in Norse society and you know in ancient Norse culture one of the worst things one of the worst ways to insult somebody is to basically imply that they're not manly, that they do things with other men. And mm -hmm. rather than actually saying this, that's what he was. So he was writing a character that opened himself up in story for a lot of abuse from his divine family mm -hmm. and ended up being a very strong, nuanced character. Mm -hmm. Now, what I like about that the system is while it allows you to do crazy crazy stupid things if you build yourself up as in it is legitimately possible in scion if you get your epic dexterity and your epic strength high enough that you can lift a you can lift the uss enterprise i'm talking the i'm talking the aircraft carrier mind you not the <laughs> you could lift it out of the harbor in los angeles throw it at a throw it at something in London, England, and hit within about ten meters. If your strength, <laughs> if your epic strength and dexterity were high enough. Okay. However, despite being able to do crazy, absurd, insane things, if you're statted right, what I've noticed overwhelmingly was that the people who played it got into or got into the role play. You know, got into the social interaction, got into, you know, making their character live and breathe rather than just kill, kill, murder, and mutilate. Mm -hmm. You know, rather than killing a bunch of stuff, they were telling their own story. And that, to me, as a, as a game master, or as a Scion calls them, storytellers, was my idea of Nirvana. Something that is rare in, in other systems. Well, is it really the system, or is it the player? Well, it's more like, a, uh, let's call it a system, because the player, and at some, some point, it's part of the system. Uh, how should I put it? The system establishes the, the way you play. If the system rewards you for killing, for murdering, for pillaging, that's what the player's going to do. Just, you if know. The, if the system rewards other kind of activities, that's what the player's going to do. Now, within reason, I would say Drax is absolutely correct. I mean, there are several webcomics about Dungeons and Dragons uh, care, uh, groups that are very, very hack and slash. Take a look at a comic called Knights of the Dinner Table, for example. Or uh, uh, go ahead. just uh, an example. One of the the last 
Dungeons and Dragons campaign. It was actually but the Pathfinder rule set, but it's the derivation of of uh, it's a derivative of Dungeons and Dragons Pathfinder. Uh, the last campaign that that I ran, it was titled the murder the murder hobos and the princesses. <laughs> well, that is the stereotype. And the the characters were just a bunch of murderers looking for treasure and and riches, and the princesses were in some way guiding them, and they understood perfectly how the their way of thinking, and the characters became heroes. They became legendary heroes, and but they got everything they wanted. But the the way I ran the campaign, there was a lot of murder, lots of tomb robbing and and treasure scavenging, and, and because that's what it was all about. But the but also the way I ran the campaign, uh, they became great heroes with mythical power, and. The princesses had a much more altruist aim, not exactly altruist, but more honorable, and they pulled the characters on that path. But they, the characters, uh, were not. Uh, they were not doing it for the sake of doing good or or imparting justice. It's because the princesses were. Very smart and very cunning at uh, at directing them and seeing the way how to profit, how to get profit for them. So the princesses actually were scheming masterminds, manipulating the. Yeah. Okay. Oh. No, they were not manipulating the characters. The characters were fully aware of what the princesses wanted, and the princesses knew what the what the player characters wanted it was a sort of a mutually beneficial society so was this a, supposed to be a satire no but the characters were well, they were really uh, well some of some of them were very ruthless murderers others were more like adventurers looking for riches but in uh, but mostly they were not there to become heroes they they became so because of the because of the way the princesses directed them and because there well there were many things that came into play and the way i did it well if i hadn't done it that way the characters would just have been a bunch of murderers pillaging everything so it had it took uh, well it's a campaign that i uh, that i ran the way i i wanted and uh, i had been 10 years trying to run such a campaign with that tone and the first few tries have been so many years trying and they always turned out like ruthless murderers and pillagers but it was after I gathered a lot of a lot of experience, 
and found a way to actually uh, cater to their interest and form a way to direct them the heroic way I wanted without uh, without leaving aside their own interest. Well, the stereotype of the murder hobo has been around early in D&D. The itinerant, you know, heavily weaponed, you know, heavily armed sword for hire that really has no operation. They go around where the money is and kill for more or kill for money. Mm-hmm. You know? and, and I was using the, the special add-on rule set from Pathfinder called Mythic Adventures, which is, uh, some call it epic levels done right, which uh, it proves that you don't require to have the characters at extremely high levels to make them epic and powerful. It's a sort of add-on which you put put on the characters and they get a bunch of power-ups, abilities, and things and things that bend the rules and you can just take it away whenever you want or whenever you're done or whenever certain conditions are no longer met and that's it it's not like the epic levels where oh the character is already level 40 and you can just take those levels away and they are for example uh magical sword of the uh, level of legend and power like the Excalibur and when one of the princesses is wielding it that emits a sort of aura which uh, sort of uh, powers up the party and and there are abilities that are awakened inside them and make them more more powerful, allow them to bend the rules to use their powers and their abilities in new in new ways. It allows them to to power up other kind of mythical weapons. It's, it's quite an interesting rule set add on. There's, for example, uh, one of the power-ups is, uh, for example, there's the attack, the attack of opportunity. There's uh, one of the power-ups that you can obtain. It's a sort of a mythical feat, or I don't know how they, I don't remember how they are called. I think they're mythical feats or mythical abilities. One of them, whenever uh opponent attacks you and misses, it generates an attack of opportunity. So whenever someone attacks and misses, you hit them back. And and there's another one which whenever you gain an attack of opportunity, you get a plus 10 bonus on the attack roll. And so they, if you combine them, you, for example, can run through an army and everyone in the army tries to attack you, misses, and you hit them back. So they they keep missing, and you keep hitting them as you as you pass them by. And most of those abilities are uh, 
Well, they have a lot of narrative potential. You can do a lot of things that are only possible in that are not normally not possible in in the standard rules, but you you see them all the time in movies, in anime, animated movies, and everything where someone does uh, heroic actions or in, or acid battle prowess. Remember one of the one of the, one of the battles they were battling a giant dragon of Godzilla magnitude. <laughs> that is massive. That kind of size, yeah, massive. And one of the characters was a wrestler, and he had the ability to grow in size uh, to by two size categories. He was medium sized and turned into huge size category it was he was still not the size of the dragon but he grew in size grabbed the dragon and he had a power which allowed him to complete to immobilize completely so the dragon was flying he jumped on the dragon's back he grew in size grappled the dragon and then used his power to lock the dragon in place. And then the other characters were on a flying ship, and they fired at the dragon with the ship's cannons until they killed it. Did you watch that Godzilla reboot on Netflix? The animated ones? The last Godzilla Mm -hmm. that I've seen was the one with Godzuki back in the 70s. I saw the. I watched the latest Godzilla on, on the, when I went to the movies. There's a trilogy. I don't know if it was put out in theaters or not, but it's it, it's an anime, and it's on Netflix. And they released one movie a year, but now you can binge watch all three. I highly enjoyed it. What I liked is they they gave Godzilla a character. He's actually. Uh, the defender of the planet, of the environment. Mm-hmm. And he shows up when the human race has gotten too advanced and is damaging the environment to the point of new, no return. Mm-hmm. And he actually kicks humanity off the planet. And they come back actually thousands of years later to try to reclaim Earth. But by then, mm-hmm. the environment has already reverted back to primeval. That's the right word. I won't give you any spoilers about whether they win or not. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone has any personal project or something going on? My only personal project is the fact that I'm doing a series playthrough of the Dragon Quest games, but that's no major thing. Those were good games. Very. You know, I admit, when they went 3D, I was... Not happy at first, but they turned out okay. I I can't I can't replay the PS One game. It just it did not age well. But the PS Two ones, right, were great. Now, if you want to play a good version of the Dragon Quest Seven or sorry or Dragon Warrior Seven, it was as it was released here. Believe it or not, if you can uh, look for the three DS version of it. It, it uses the modern pun-laden uh, translation conventions, but it's 
you know, but it's a lot better. The UI is better. It feels a lot more well done than the original was. What I like about the The Dragon Quest series is they keep certain uh, things the same. Like, you always have the Metal King. You have the day and night cycles. Right. They keep the music the same. So, I mean, as soon as you jump in, you feel reminiscent. And you just get right into it. Oh, absolutely. I played only the first four. Compare... Yes. I'm sorry, go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt you, Drax. I was saying that I played the first four of the NES, and I even attempted several times to finish the first one in one sitting. (laughs) (laughs) Because the battery had got damaged, so I... It would only last about 10 minutes if I save. <laughs> so it's ancient cartridges. Yeah. And uh, I managed to to finish the first Final Fantasy in one sitting. So I wanted to do the same with Dragon Warrior. I attempted several times, but never accomplished that. The random numbers in Final Fantasy? were so frustrating. <sighs> I remember, oh gosh, to get to get through the Marsh Cave, I had to buy 99 Cure Poison. I forget what they were called. Pure or something like that. Right. Uh, but I, wasn't, I could not even attempt that cave without having 99 of them. I always had 99 of uh, Cure and Pure Potions. That, that was the standard tactic with that game, was keeping 99 of your pots. Yeah. And when I finally got to the end and I fought Chaos, I lost the first time, reset, did it again in one. And it was just all random numbers because I didn't yeah. change my strategy. Yeah, I remember the Castle of Ordeal. There were some monsters. There were the Man Cat and the Cat Man. One of them was yellow, I think, or orange. The other was green, and if you got to fight the green ones, you were it, they were a certain certain death. They were likely going to wipe you off. <laughs> no. So you, you you had to pray that you would not encounter them. I think it was the mind flayers. They had an instant death attack. Oh yeah. I I don't think yeah. the ribbon protected you from that. But you didn't get the ribbon until later, anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the green cat man or man cat—they were—they would cast fire, all of them. And if you if you encountered a party of four or six, I have played through Dragon Warrior one and Drag and Final Fantasy one so many times. Each, it's not funny. And yeah, you're right with. Final Fantasy 1, the RNG, there is so much variance, it's not funny. Honestly can't relate. Have never attempted any of the Dragon Quest games. <laughs> oh, hey, Ken. <laughs> Hello. Finally made it. Now, I will say, that's something I actually like about Dragon Quest versus Final Fantasy. Dragon Quest, every game built a little bit on the next and a little bit on the next. You know what you're getting. It's comfortable. Now compare Final Fantasy, where each game in the series is really, really mucked about with the core mechanics. 
Yeah, they sure did. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't know. I I mean, I have somewhat limited experience of Final Fantasy, but like the first few seem more alike versus, you know, Mm, six to seven, seven to eight, eight to nine. Fair enough. Well, when when did they introduce ATB? Completely different. That would have been four. Okay. Okay. So I'll concede one, two, and three were very similar. But actually, didn't two introduce the job system? Well, here's the complicated Um, thing. What we got in North America... No, didn't introduce jobs. Not the American two, the Japanese two. But the Japanese two introduced usage-based character growth. Right, exactly. That's what I want to say, right? Jobs jobs were brought in in three. In fact, the problem with two's uh, advancement was exactly what Drax said. Again, this is a game I've streamed about four or five times. The be- you know, just trying to play it through normally grinding on monsters, no. Your best way to do it was to to grind up your weapon skills, your hit points, or your spell points, or whatever, was to find a group of enemies, take them down to where there's only one left, then proceed to beat the holy hell out of yourself. And for magic, uh, there was a sort of a glitch. And you see, if you... Well, it was actually a... It, it was a, gl- a general glitch. For example, if you attack, uh, if you select an opponent and fight, 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 fight with all your characters, on the fourth character, instead of selecting to fight, you just press B to go back until you get back to the first character and repeat it. The game tracks every time that you select an opponent to attack yeah. at the but point it doesn't of button track press when you go back right. it, it doesn't track when you go back so if you select to attack an enemy uh 20 times but it's only one turn it counts as if you had attacked the the monster for 20 turns as far as for growth yes drax is absolutely correct yeah. oh the funny thing about that, Drax, <laughs> that glitch carries on to the remakes. The Final Fantasy Origins, the PS1 uh, remake, and uh, Dawn of Souls, the Game Boy Advance remake, have that same glitch. So they didn't count it as a glitch. It was actually the way they designed it. <laughs> Three had the job system. Four, well, four was our first 16-bit one. Five had a job system. Six introduced the Magicite. Then seven, the 3D and the Materia and the weapon slots and and the whole mess. <laughs> uh, then eight had people asking you to play cards right during the middle of the apocalypse. Right, and then you had to draw magic constantly. Uh, I've spent hours in once, you know. Find, and every time I found a monster with a new spell, drawing out that magic for every single character. So I had that stack there in case I needed it. I played nine, but it did not make an impression. I I, I could not tell you what the story was for nine. I can tell you I lost interest in seven and eight. I beat them both, but I lost interest and never replayed them. On the other hand, I have replayed. One, three, four, five, and six, many times, up up from beginning to end. 
I really enjoyed 10. And 10 Part 2. I had a problem with 10 2 in that it felt too... It was linear. It wasn't even a linearity. What bothered me about it was they took the calm, quiet, you know, very reserved Yuna from 10 and then had her bouncing around in little to nothing in 10 2. I thought that was hilarious. I love the characters of the three girls. It, I was laughing the whole time. Where honestly, with uh, with uh, Riku being 15 and wearing what she did, it made me distinctly uncomfortable. <laughs> what I didn't like about Tentu was the action sequences, like the running and gunning. Hmm, maybe I should check that one out. Mm, well, I I like run and gun type stuff. So I watched nine. I watched a friend play nine and. And since then, I didn't play any Final Fantasy after 8. 12 was cool in that you could basically create scripts to run your whole battle sequence. Once you had everyone leveled up and you had the abilities that you wanted, you just created a whole bunch of if-then-else statements and just let the game go. And I actually had more fun doing that (laughs) than anything else. Um, I, after that, I turned to the Tales of Fantasia and then the Secret of Mana and what was the other? Oh, was another, Star Ocean. Secret of Mana has one of my favorite songs in a video game ever. When you're battling mm-hmm. that lich underground. Um, actually, my favorite song is the Angel's Fear. Now, I admit I've never really played Secret of Mana to any extent. I have played its sequel, A Second in Setsu 3. I played that one as well. Back, Yeah, I played a translation of it, fan translation. Exactly. And having played that, I went to go back and play Secret of Mana mm-hmm. a little bit, and I just couldn't get into it. Yeah. And Secret of Mana is one of the inspirations I have for the game I'm working on. I want the also a party of three characters controlling a main character and having AI, two AI partners. And then I remember that was uh, I played that one first, Secret of Mana. Then I played Star Ocean, which also has AI partners. But I'm more inspired by the way it's shown on. Secret of Mana, where you encounter the enemies uh, loitering around, and, and the combat starts. Where you're actually fighting them on the field and not, you know, switching to a yeah. to a combat deal, right? Right. I did like that mm-hmm. about Saken Three. So, Legend of Mana on the PlayStation kept that battle system, but what was really unique was you built the world on a map it was like a grid and you placed items on on the map to uh link the lands together oh like tactic advance and at first the first time you're playing it if you didn't read any strategy guides or magazines you didn't understand why that was important but eventually you figure out that you can make the elements stronger in certain lands by arranging it a certain way like you could increase darkness or water or light and then that triggered secret events that you normally wouldn't see. Just like Tactics Advanced. 
Final Fantasy Tactics? Yeah, Final Fantasy Tactics advanced on the Game Boy. It had a very much of a similar mechanic. Cool. Which one came out first? Probably Legend of Mana, but they were both by the same company. I know, I'm just trying to figure out who borrowed from who. Which team borrowed from which team? <laughs> Good question. Pardon me, a bit of background noise here. I'm just uh, repurposing an old laptop as a possible Plex server. Cool. Plex server. I'm not sure what you mean by Plex. Plex is a fork of... Oh, shoot. Now the name eludes me. Um, it's a home media server software solution, ah. basically. Yeah, I have a lifetime membership with them. Yeah, I got it when they did their... Um, they do them very rarely, but they did their sale to like back to the original price. So, which was like half of what the price is currently. So just like, right. ooh, snapping that up. Yeah, it's worth it because they're constantly updating it. They're even they doing some hardware partnerships and whole things like that. Yep. And it's cool. Like, honestly, one of the features that I've gotten the most use out of is um, when, like when I'm on vacation, I'll, because I mean, I, my kids, I don't want to make them suffer eight hours in the car the way I once did. But at the same time, I, uh, you know, um, I don't want them watching videos like the whole time, but I'll load up a few videos onto um, like whatever devices we have on hand, right? Like we've got an iPad and an Android tablet and my old Asus transformer. And there's Plex clients for all of these, um, Windows, Android, iOS. So I'll, you know, a week or so before the vacation, <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll fire up Plex on each device and I'll select... Th- the same set of movies on each so that there's no fighting, right? Nobody's like, oh, that movie's on that one, so I want that device, but I want to watch that. No, 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 no. Smart parent. Put the same thing on each, on all three. Um, but anyways, I'll load up like an initial set of movies and then about halfway through the vacation, I'll wipe off some of them and replace with others because I can log into my Plex server from basically anywhere in the world, right? So I can just go to Plex, be like, okay, now I would like these movies instead of those movies. Pull them down, and then they can have, you know, a different set of movies for the way home. Meanwhile, when I was a kid, I was the one who was having to program my rem- uh, program the TV for every time the power went out because Dad couldn't do it. Your, par- your kids are lucky to have a father that's as, as technically savvy as you are. They would probably disagree with you. <laughs> <laughs> My, my companions, when I was going on <laughs> on long road trips, were books, which means I got a lot of motion sickness from trying to read in a moving car going up and down hills, because the Missouri Ozark hills are not good for trying to read on. I don't doubt. I, uh, I too, had, I, I read the Hardy Boy books more times than I care to count. Yeah, I, too, filled my backpack with books. I didn't have a Game Boy or anything like that. But, I may be showing my age, but I had the Walkman and a bunch of cassette tapes. Oh, hell yeah. I think I still have my Walkman around here somewhere, actually. Found it in a box about a month ago. Can't remember where I put it again after that, but still around. Actually, my clock upstairs, um, digital clock, still has the cassette deck in the top. Still works, actually. I don't know where any of my old cassettes are, though. I should really put, like something really cheesy and corny in there so that, you know, when any, anybody walks up and just starts messing with the buttons, 
starts like <laughs> playing Travis Tritt or something. Ah, <laughs> <sighs> oh, cassettes. All of the, oh my gosh, what was, ah, uh, I was doing something earlier today and what was I doing? Oh, geez. Darn it. It was like just the perfect nostalgia moment though. Um, you know, I was, it was something on the computer and for the life of me, I can't remember what it was, but my, my daughter came up and like asked about what I was doing. And I'm just like, you know what? This is something that you are never going to have to worry about. <laughs> and I, ah, I wish it would have was, it was some, uh, whatever, not important, but it was just kind of funny. It was like, Hey, this is one of those old computer person moments talking to young pixel, not even pixel generation, like total, total digital native here. Um, asking some uh, old digital immigrant what, uh, what the heck he's up to. <laughs> I remember when, uh, you didn't have to rewind cassette tapes anymore when it would automatically switch to the other side and play it. Well, if you had uh, the right kind of player, right? Yeah. That was an innovation. <laughs> that was a revolution. Although yeah, I've had... it ruined. <laughs> uh, so we had a bunch of, I think this was a Canadian phenomenon. I've never encountered anybody else who's heard of them. Um, but there was a kids band called Rocky Roletti and the Junior Noodle Wave. And as near as I can tell, this was kind of a collaboration band between a bunch of like, um, you know, sort of higher end Canadian rockers and producers. And they put together a kid's album. And it's mostly just like, it's, it's about as cheesy as you'd expect for kids fair. Although some of the stuff still elicits a laugh when I go back to it as an adult, but we had the cassette and at the end of side one on the cassette, there was just a really short little ditty and it was on the CD version too. And it was very, very meta because the lyrics were if effecti uh, effectively flip the tape now, flip the tape now. It's time to flip the tape now. Don't hesitate or wait now. It's time to flip the tape. But if you're listening to us on CD, just relax and sing along with me. But if you're listening to a tape, flip it now, don't wait. That was, that was the lyric set for the song, right? And then of course we got a tape deck that did the auto flip and it just like, oh, ruined that song. Just ruined it for us. <laughs> I've seen similar on some audio CDs. Generally, they were mixtapes of you know from friends recording stuff off the radio. But yeah, I've seen that before. Yeah, it's nice. Yeah, it's nice. But, and there was all kinds of fun stuff that you know artists would do along those lines, right? As you come to the middle of the tape, they just put some silly little thing there. I think Weird Al did this a couple of times, and you know, just it was a thing that was there, right? Like it was it was a way to just sort of have some fun with the playback medium, um, hidden songs as well. You know, the advent of CDs basically ruined hidden songs. You know, hey, why is the last track on this CD 18 minutes long? Oh, it's four minutes of song and then 12 minutes of silence. And then, <laughs> anyways, um, whereas with, you know, the CD, which had the last track was backwards. <laughs> oh, well, and, and uh, there were lots of people saying it was satanic, <laughs> but it was actually the the singer uh, singing in sort of a whisper growl, but it was backwards. Ah, using a sort of voice acting. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> the Castlevania Symphony of the Night PlayStation game had a good secret on the CD. 
if you put it in an audio player, it would ignore the data track and just go to the secret audio track where a guy's voice would say, this is a Sony PlayStation Black Disc. Do not play this. Didn't give you a warning. If you waited long enough, then you got a really cool techno remix of one of the songs. Was it Blood and Tears? Probably. And Symphony of the Night, there's a game I've put hundreds of hours into. Uh, probably as many as I've um, sunk into Ultima 6. Although, admittedly, I haven't played Ultima 6 in a little while. Um, there was a Facebook post on one of the groups I'm with today. And it was just like, oh, you've woken up in the last game world that you played in. Where is your new home now for the rest of your life? I'm like, oh. Oh, I saw that on Twitter. Yeah. Oh, I live in Amalur now. Okay, I'm fine with that. It's pretty here. I mean, granted, the Winter Fae are trying to murder all the mortals, but, you know, still, like, it's pretty here. <laughs> For me, it would be Zangar Marsh and Warcraft. Where I would probably be on Atrus, a- because I was just... Literally, the last thing I was doing were Order Hall quests in Legion for my Death Knight. Uh, you know, my WoW experience... You may laugh at this. Um, and it's funny now, because my buddy, who had me do this is um he's actually running for office now we're having a provincial election in a couple of weeks here and he's running for office in his hometown Um, but at the time we were both university students together he though um his he actually now has his phd in archaeology and uh at the time i can't remember what he was he was taking an arts degree at the the local university which is where i met him and Every summer, he would go away to Greece, always to the same dig site. He kind of, he got tacked onto this one expedition. And so every summer he'd be back there. And I think he still goes actually. Um, although I don't know how that's going to impact his political ambitions. <laughs> but anyways, he, uh, for a time was ludicrously into wow. Just like every minute he wasn't in class or singing in choir or you know, performing the basic functions necessary to his survival, um, he was playing WoW. And sometimes even those basic functions necessary to his survival got pushed back. (laughs) But anyways, he had to go to Greece. And so for a few weeks, he's just like, I need you to log in uh, once every so many days. Here's my, here's my stuff. Um, if, if anything has gone wrong, I need you to do this. Like he, he gave me this whole like big list of like things to do and, you know, maybe things that I could do playing as his character to, you know, just try and keep him, um, current, I guess is the word I'm going to use here. Um, of course that was an insanely busy summer for me, so I didn't always have time to log in as much as he would have hoped, but you know, I, I guess, um, it was very important to him that his account and his character were getting accessed on a regular basis by a trusted party, uh, not just by anybody. And, you know, so that was a thing. That's the sum total of my wow experience right there. Yeah. That's the boring grindy stuff. I used to do that religiously. I'd wake up every morning before work, give myself about 45 minutes to do my dailies. Been there, done that raid tank in uh, FF 14, a realm reborn classic. Time flies. And it's crazy that even, you know, how huge WoW was then and how long ago it was huge that you were in, that you were in university at the time, and it's still the number one. 
know, it's mm -hmm. not nearly got the stranglehold on the, you know, on the MMO uh, scene that it used to, but it's still, yeah. Well, the popularity surges back every time they come out with an expansion. Right. Yeah, and it's, I mean, the thing is too, like, it's Blizzard, right? And while I could say more for Blizzard's lack of originality in a lot of ways, um, they are not unlike Apple. And this isn't the most fair comparison to make, but I'm making it anyways. So hate mail goes to um, ultimacodex at gmail.com. <laughs> they are insanely good at taking an idea and polishing it until it just sparkles and then handing that you know to the gaming audience and making a heck of a lot of money with it right i mean there's nothing really about warcraft as an rts that makes it stand out except for the fact that it is a ludicrously well-polished rts it's fun to play it's snappy it's you know, just all the different bits of it work together exactly as they should. It's a fine example of the RTS form, even if there's nothing particularly like ooh ah innovative about it. Um, and WoW, in some ways, you know, like WoW is basically just a very highly refined version of everything EverQuest was trying to do with the Warcraft lore grafted onto it. Um, but it's so polished. The user experience is solid. And that's what Blizzard really excels at. I mean, indeed. I mean, wow, these days is the gold standard that pretty much every single MMO uh, measures itself against, just like EverQuest was in its day. And ESO is coming pretty dang close. I'm kind of sour on ESO because my experiences with it were back when it first launched which I know were probably the game at its lowest point, but that's what I remember of it. So it makes it hard on me to get back into it because things that other games took for granted, you had to use, you basically had to mod the game back in the day for basic minimap functionality. Uh, like soda? <laughs> yeah, but the term soda and polish don't very rarely end up in the same sentence unless you're, unless you're doing a stand-up comedy routine. <laughs> Well, well, no. I mean, you could also use words like of and lack, and, and then they all tie together really quite well. This is also true. But uh, I, you know what? I'm probably, again, hate mail, ultimacodex at gmail.com. Um, I'm sure someone is going to say I'm just the worst RPG gamer for saying this next bit, but I'm going to say it anyways because whatever, hate me. Um of the many, many Elder Scrolls branded games that have come out, TESO is far and away my favorite. Well, in terms of like the overall look, feel, user experience, how it plays, everything, even above and beyond Skyrim, um, you're TESO making me cringe. Is my favorite. <laughs> you're making me cringe. Well, it's it's your right and privilege to be wrong, Durkan. I know. <laughs> you know what the problem is? Like, I think. I mean, TESO and Skyrim are actually kind of close for me, but I think where TESO wins it is because Skyrim, and this is so weird to say, because for the longest time, the idea of feeling like there were other people in a game was actually like anathema to me. But as weird as this is to say, Skyrim feels too empty to me. You know, I can play through it. I can wander through its admittedly vast world. 
and it feels too empty too um there's another word i'm looking for here and it's not coming to me because it's late oh well um whereas, lack of water yeah i don't know something just and you're talking about vanilla skyrim as it was designed as it was released like, yeah you know, you, i mean I, you can I, mod well, it okay Second problem with Skyrim is that if I go down the modding rabbit hole, I never come out again. Oh, me too. Yeah. I I go Uh, back in once a year and update everything and play the new environments. I think the last time I'm... Go ahead. I'm sorry. sorry. Go go Harmony. Go Harmony. The last time I played modded Skyrim, I think I was running around as Princess Celestia from My Little Pony while dual-wielding lightsabers. I mean, you can go that route or you can try to be immersive and limit the mods you you go with there's a fantastic project called uh inconsequential npcs that just adds a bunch of like vendors and street sweepers just npcs living their lives they have no good dialogue to add to the world but it makes it feel more alive i was gonna say there's another one we have plenty of npcs like that and there's also a mod called interesting npcs these that mod actually writes incredible dialogue and it's voiced for hundreds of characters. Some living in town, some just wandering the world. It, some are random encounters. It's very inspiring to me that people come up with such content, but I'm of the belief, and call me a heretic if you will here, a game should not have to rely on mods for basic functionality. No, no, you know, a I'm with game you there. should. A game should stand, be able to stand on its own without any kind of modification and be playable and enjoyable. Well, absolutely for the initial sale. But what I'm trying to convince Kenneth is, Kenneth of is he can make the world better himself. Oh, I know I can. I, I, I and it's worthwhile, I, in my opinion, to do so. I have dived down the modding rabbit hole so many times, it's not even funny. But there's just, I play Skyrim, I play TESO, and I just... I come away liking TESO a little bit more. In my Not opinion, that I really have time for either. Having played both, I, that's one thing I will give for ESO, is that it's busier. Skyrim, when I played it, it felt like, you know, I went and did everything. I did as close to 100%, you know, not counting all the radiant quests you could do, the randomly generated crap. Right, right. I went and tried to do as close to a 100% a completion as I could. But one thing I remember was there was large swaths of land where there was nothing but maybe some random encounters. Having came from Oblivion before I played Skyrim, Oblivion felt, you know, while there were, you know, wide open areas, there, you know, there were random dots everywhere that had interesting stuff. You know, there was, you know, there was clutter. There was, you know, unassociated little uh, mini dungeons or towers or, Aelid, uh cities everywhere. I guess, like, for me, and, and you're exactly right, and you kind of, I think we've talked about this in, like, some earlier episode of the podcast, too, um, because it strikes me that I may have made this exact analogy before, but, and this is a problem with open-world games kind of just in general, um, or it can be. This can be a real stumbling block for open-world games just in general, which is, and again, like, my experience may be somewhat more unique in that, you know, I've had the opportunity to actually, like, get out and wander off trail through some mountain pass somewhere, right? You know, 
some truly isolated spots in the provinces of Alberta and British Columbia. I've had those opportunities uh, through scouting and, and other adventures to just go out into the genuine wilderness and experience what it is actually like to, you know, go from point A to point B to walk literally across the plains to that mountain way over there in the distance. Um, and I know what that feels like and to experience it in real life is an adventure, but it's not what I'm looking for in a game. I know that feeling as well. I felt it when I visited, uh, Prince Edward Island and I went to the black marsh when I hiked to the middle of the march and there was no one around, that yeah, was an no amazing one, feeling. It is, in real life. I felt like the only person on Earth at that point. <laughs> yeah, now, if we're going and that's to talk cool about... when it's the real world. Now, if we're going to talk about Elder Scrolls, there's something I've noticed, a pattern, ever since I first got into the series in Morrowind when I, when I saw it at my friendly local game store, which happens to be Walmart here, because I live in the middle of nowhere. Every single game through the series, people have complained, oh, they've dumbed it down, oh, they've simplified it, oh, they've ruined the series. But every single game, more and more people, you know, the pop population of people playing it has ballooned. Even though every time they say it's simplified, it's ruined. But more and more people are getting in. I mean, a, a Morrowind, far more people play that than Daggerfall. Far more people played Oblivion than Morrowind, and so on with Skyrim. I wouldn't know about ESO, but possibly. What's going to draw me back into Skyrim again is Morrow. What is it called? Skywind. Oh, you know yeah, the Morrowind. They're, they're porting Morrowind into the uh, into Skyrim. Yeah, that's going to be amazing. Yeah, hasn't that project been going for like five, six, seven years now? Yes. Mm-hmm. Morrowind is a game. I I bought it and I tried to play it, but by the time I was trying to play it. It was just too dated. I didn't have the patience for the graphics or the interface. Where me, I had a guy in full iron armor and, you know, high strength and high, high uh, blades or long blade skill of a long sword, getting the crap kicked out of me by a naked dark elf who was just punching me to death in the starting city. <laughs> because I didn't know how to do the combat at the time. After that, I thought this is dumb and set it aside until I ended up getting Oblivion later. I'm going to have fun editing this, aren't I? Not so much editing. Not so much editing. No one's flagged any inappropriate content to me uh, via Discord. But I'm just kind of thinking, oh man, I'm going to have to struggle to compose some show notes for this. So I'm sure you've ranged over dozens of topics by now. Random, fully random. Hey, that's all right. Well, what that's topic. the joy of attention deficit. Yeah, it's kind of, it's a form that works for the podcast. It's a form that works for the internet, for that matter. Tried to invite Nico, but she said she already had plans. <laughs> uh, that's all right. There'll be more. Cran was contemplating joining, but I obviously she's decided against it. Mm-hmm. You had plans. <laughs> hey, well, you know, some people do on Friday night. And meanwhile, over in the back end of the uh, website, uh, Fenix and Browncoat are trying to... So this is actually kind of cool. I don't know if I'm allowed to to really tease this out, but I'm going to go for it. Um, we're in the process of finalizing um, Underwiki becoming the official, recognized official wiki for Underworld Ascendant. 
Um, so, you know, mm-hmm. the guys who maintain that wiki, they've been talking with other side entertainment and we're pretty much there. Um, the only thing that they've come back to us with is they want under wiki, the website to be HTTPS enabled. Um, from the hosting side, from the server side, that's done. All of my domains actually have available um, Let's Encrypt certificates. Uh, I can also go to like more robust SSL options if I need, but um, just if I purchase a domain or if I add a domain onto my account, a Let's Encrypt certificate gets rolled up for it automatically. So that's kind of cool. Um, but... Which is why, by the way, um, spam, 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 humbug.com is now HTTPS. And I'm working on the Ultima Codex, but there's a lot of backend changes I need to make uh, in terms of... Actually, you know, I probably could make the jump today, but I'm just slightly timid about it. Um, but anyways, I guess moving MediaWiki to the point of being ready for HTTPS is um, a bit more of a chore than it is for WordPress. It's actually quite simple for WordPress. So... That is what uh, Fenix and Browncoat are working on tonight, trying to get the MediaWiki install at uh, UnderWiki, not only ready for HTTPS, but also ready for um, my host is actually doing a big PHP and Apache upgrade this month. So they have to um, make sure that they're ready for that as well. So they're... (laughs) battling some server upgrades if you happen to be browsing under wiki tonight and you notice things are a little bit funky uh that's why although hopefully by the time this episode goes live everything has been smoothed out but you know there it is if you want to participate more directly in the podcast you can send us an email at ultimacodex at gmail.com or if you're feeling a bit braver you can leave us a voice message in one of three places the podcast website our facebook page or on anchor.fm you're also welcome to join us on discord to chat with us and to lurk or contribute to podcast recordings when they happen if you want to join the Ultima Dragons, you can do so at udic.org, where at you can choose your very own dragon name. You can also find the Ultima Dragons on Facebook and on Google+. You can follow at Ultima Dragons on Twitter or join them on Slack or Discord. And if you're feeling really old school, you can even fire up a Telnet client and check out the Wearmount. If you'd like to support Spam 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 Humbug, you can do so at Patreon, where for as little as a dollar a month, you can get access to episodes the day before they go live for everyone else. You'll also get access to behind-the-scenes audio on occasion and possibly other interesting content. But if a monthly subscription isn't your thing, you can always buy your video games at GOG. We are a partner of that fine site, and every time you buy one or more games at GOG via the links on our websites or in the show notes, that helps us out. But we also welcome your moral support. You can like the Ultima series on Facebook, follow at Ultima Codex on Twitter, or leave the podcast a review on iTunes. And you're welcome to share our episodes with your friends and social media circles. Spam 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 Humbug is a production of the Ultima Codex. You can find show notes online at spamspamspamhumbug.com. Thank you for listening, and until next time, be virtuous. <laughs>